This afternoon we'll be looking at the session of Christ. We'll be looking at the session of Christ as being seated at the right hand of God. And this particular head of doctrine can be found under Lord's Day 19, which you'll find on page 533 of your book of praise. Why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await, as judge from heaven, the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Close to the end of the famous series, The Lord of the Rings, there is a scene in which Aragorn, one of the main supporting characters, is crowned king. He stands in front of the masses, clothed in the symbols of glory. Tolkien writes, tall as the sea kings of old, he stood above all that were near. Ancient he seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood, and wisdom sat upon his brow. And then Faramir cried, behold, the king! Many of you who have seen the movies may remember that particular scene. But there is something that the movie leaves out, which is important as a description of the fulfillment of Aragorn's work to claim the throne. The reason for this is that for Tolkien, the ascension to the throne was not enough. There was more to truly being a king. And so he writes, in the days that followed his crowning, the king sat on his throne in the hall of the kings and pronounced his judgments. And then it speaks about the different areas from which people come. And what follows this is his dispensing of judgments before the people, pardoning many that were once enemies and condemning others. While his crowning was a symbol of the glory and honor he received in his office, his work was not yet done. In sitting down, he began to fulfill the tasks of his new office in earnest. In our Lord's Day, we read about the glory that Christ our King receives on his ascension into heaven. He is clothed with glory in his crowning. And like Aragorn, his sitting down is not just a symbol of the finishing of his work. Rather, it is a symbol of a climax and a new phase. Beloved congregation, I bring you the word of God under the following theme. Christ's glory is our gain. And we'll see, first of all, the glory of Christ, our head. Secondly, our benefits for today. And third, our benefits for eternity. Last time that we were going through the Lord's Days, we discussed the ascension into heaven of our Lord. How, before the eyes of his disciples, he was taken up into heaven. 
His ascension marked the acceptance and approval of God over his ministry. It was a divine sign that the work of Jesus Christ on earth had been completed and everything that he said and promised will come to pass. This also includes his promise that he will be with us until the end of the age. And we have seen how that promise has been fulfilled by his Holy Spirit coming to earth. We'll speak even more extensively about that later as we come to that head of doctrine. But what did it mean for Christ? What happened after he ascended? In the Apostles' Creed, we read about how he is seated at the right hand of God. And we see the truth of this in Ephesians 1. There we read, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, he seated him at his right hand, in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. But how did this come to pass? The veil is lifted for us through a prophecy that's seen by Daniel. We read in Daniel 7, I saw in night visions, Behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed." Having completed his work, Christ ascended into heaven and was given a seat of prominence, a seat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now, it's significant that he was given a seat at the right hand of the Father, and there are two reasons for this. The main reason is that the seat that is given is one of prestige. The seat is a seat of honor. We read of something similar in the account of Solomon that we find in the Old Testament. There we find Solomon's mother Bathsheba coming in with her request. And Solomon doesn't even let her talk. He says, come in, come in. He calls for a chair to be brought in, seated at his right hand, and he lets his mother sit down there. He's showing to the whole world the great depths of respect that he has for his mom, sitting at his right hand. After all, she's the one who's raised him to the position of prominence. She was the one who was behind him being raised to the position of king. She was the one who approached his father, King David, and reminded him of his promise. And so he places her in a seat of honor there beside him, showing to all the world that she's someone highly favored, someone of significant influence and respect in his kingdom. But there is one main difference between Bathsheba and Christ. Bathsheba makes her request, saying, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as wife. Stunned by her request, he responds, Now why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? And why don't you ask for him the kingdom also? Not only does he flatly refuse her request, but he sees what lies behind it. It is an attempt for the throne on the part of his brother. And out of his duty toward the throne and towards God's people, he responds. He not only refuses her request, 
but he also hunts down and executes Adonijah for treason. Now, Christ, on the other hand, has more than the trappings of glory. Christ is not just seated down at the right side and speaking and asking for requests. But Christ has, as we read in Daniel, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, languages, and nations should serve him. This is the second reason that he's given a seat at the right hand of the Father. It's not only a seat of honor that bestows prestige and glory to the one sitting on it, but it's also a seat of power and authority from where he can make binding decrees and rule as a sovereign. This gives us much to be thankful for, brothers and sisters. Christians who have this vision in mind of Christ seated at the right hand of the Father need never to feel isolated. The anchor for their souls is found in heaven with their Lord Jesus Christ. When things seem to have no rhyme or reason, we can remember that he's sitting there ruling. And although we can't understand the pattern that is being woven out in the fabric of our lives, from our perspective, we can be assured that he is there. He is ruling. He is working out all things for the good of those who love him. That no power and authority is greater than his, and so nothing, death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers, nor any created thing can separate us from his love. Because he has the power and authority and dominion over all things. But it's not just to Christ's glory that we look. It's not just towards some future hope that we look. Christians receive many benefits in the here and now as well due to Christ's session at the right hand of the Father. The first benefit is the one which will probably be the first to jump into mind for many of you. We saw before that Christ's session, which is what his sitting down at the right hand is called. We saw that Christ's session was a sign that his work as ruler and judge began. We saw that it was a sign of the honor that he received, but it was also a sign of his authority. While this is true, the book of Hebrews shows us yet another aspect of his session. His session shows that his work as king begins in earnest. But it also shows that his main work as priest has finished. We read in Hebrews 10 that every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins in and of themselves. But Christ writes the author to the letter of the Hebrews. After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now this is important. Kids, do you remember the times that your parents have read through the descriptions of the temple furniture? They had a lot there, didn't they? But there was always something that was missing. Both in the temple and the tabernacle in ancient Israel, you'd find many pieces of furniture, but what you would never find there was a chair. 
The reason for this was that the priests were never allowed to sit down while they were doing their temple service. They could never sit down because their work was never done. But Christ's session, when he went up to the right hand of the Father and he sat down, it was a sign that his work was done. The sacrifice was done. The fight is over. The battle is won. And he sits there to remind us of that fact. That is the greatest benefit that we receive today because of the session of Christ. Every time that we sing or say that he's seated at the right hand of God, we are reminding ourselves and those around us that his work is done. We don't need to see his body being offered up again and again. This is why we don't celebrate the Roman Catholic Mass. Because there they offer up the body of Christ again and again in the Eucharist. But we say together with the Apostle and Peter in 1 Peter 3, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. His work is complete. His work is done. He is sitting at the right hand of God as proof of this. This is what we see when we take from the bread, when we take from the wine. It's proof of this, that he's there at the right hand of the Father. This is what we celebrate there. What a wonderful message that is. But we receive even more than that. We read about that in our Lord's Day, don't we? Christ's ascension, his glory, and the fact that we are joined to him in this is meaningful for us today as well. For it is because he receives honor and glory, because he is seated at the right hand of the Father, that we get what he gives and not what we've earned. In our Lord's Day, we read, First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts on us, his members. We get what he gives and not what we've earned. We've earned the wrath of God. But we get what he gives because his work is done and he is seated. These heavenly gifts take on various forms. At Pentecost, Peter tells the crowds that one of these gifts is the work of the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of his people, sanctifying and renewing them. Many of you can look back on your own lives and see how the Lord has brought you closer and closer to him over the course of your life. In the face of trials and temptations and even disaster and heartache, Many of you can tell about how you can see the Lord working through you to draw you closer to him. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. By his sanctifying work, he purifies us day by day, using the word to draw us ever closer to God through Christ. But more than that, he provides for us in the very here and now. We read about that in the letter to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's open to that in particular. Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll go to verse 7. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, the Holy Spirit says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each of us has been given, each of us has been equipped with varying abilities according to the measure of Christ's grace. Each of these abilities is described as a gift given to men by Christ when he ascended on high. And each of them is meant to be used for the benefit of the church. The Holy Spirit continues here. Later on in verse 11. And he, being Christ himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of saints. He gives us some pastors and teachers. Why? Why has Christ equipped us in this way? He carries on for the equipping of saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning of craftiness, of, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Men have been equipped to be the leaders of the church, watching over it and protecting it. Their job is to protect the church from being swayed by every wind of doctrine, to lead the church in right understanding and to help grow the church, speaking the truth in love. And this has a ripple effect as we see further in Ephesians 4. Having been led and taught by these men, we are told that we grow in Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working, by which, he, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So this further knowledge of Christ granted to the leaders, shared with all the people in the body, the congregation which pulls them together, this further knowledge of Christ is his gift as well. And it is what is meant for the edifying, for the building up of the entire body in love. What rich gifts. We don't just receive salvation. We don't just receive the gift of Christ's work that is shown in his session. We receive a body. We receive a family. A family to which we are bound together in love. Take a moment to think about this, brothers and sisters. Look around you. These people you see, these people you see, the ones you care about, whom you meet week after week, these people who support you when you have a baby or health struggles, when you go through tough times, when a family member dies or someone near to you leaves the faith, these are on your doorstep, knocking, when you yourself start to wander from the faith, seeking to draw you back. These are the people who support you in so many other ways, who themselves are held together and encouraged and supported by shepherds, elders, deacons, pastors, and teachers. These people who ought to be so dear to you, they are a gift. They are a gift from Christ. Revel in this marvelous gift 
as you are built up in love and respond in loving support in turn. Our Lord's day continues. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. Today, we'll touch on this briefly and perhaps go more in depth another day. But there are various enemies that plague us. Elsewhere in the catechism, we have three that are described, the devil, the world, and our own flesh. But by Christ's power, by his finished work, sin can trouble us, but can never again have dominion over us. Not even death can have victory over us. For Christ defeated that too. And because of this reality, because of this reality, nothing in this world can touch us. Certainly they can plague us. But as Martin Luther so famously put it, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Those that stand against us may even seem to be winning for a time, but there will come a day of reckoning. There will come a day when we will prevail. We will suffer, but we will not be overcome because Christ is at work in us, and he will carry us through to the end, to the day of judgment and beyond. Beyond to where we can see God's benefits for eternity. There will indeed be a day when we are vindicated. It's at this point that the words of Handel's Messiah, taken from 1 Corinthians 15, ring out so clearly. The words, the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised. The dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Imagine that sight. That blast as that of a trumpet on a clear day ringing out across the cosmos. The land stirs and the dead are raised. The sea boils as the dead are brought up from it. Not decaying corpses but whole to meet their Savior who is descending from heaven. Descending from where he is seated at the right hand of God. Yes, our Savior will be carrying out his task. As we saw before, he is sitting And as king, that implies bringing forward judgments. Nations and kings will kneel before him and proclaim justice. Every word that was said, every wicked deed will be accounted for when those who rejected his lordship and persecuted his people, whether on an individual basis or on a corporate basis. It will be a fearful day. A day of judgment and of awe. A day that when that, was, that which was done in the darkest corners will be shouted off the rooftops. But it will not be a fearful day for those who belong to Christ. For those of you who believe the catechism has special words. There it says, what comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? Now imagine that. Comfort. What an amazing thing to say. How can we speak of comfort on such a day? That's because this terrible judge who is coming in splendor and majesty is our brother and our friend. For those who are in debtor's prison, the coming of this judge is a frightening thing. 
but for those whom this judge paid for and freed. It's a wonderful thing. The man who has paid for them, who has cleared them of all charges, is now coming to vindicate them. Their fellow prisoners who tormented them and rejected the judge's mercy will get their justice. But for the man whose debt has been paid, it's a weight off of his shoulders. He sees him coming down the hall to open his cell. What an amazing thing this is. He was declared free, but now he will be free indeed. What tears of joy would stream down his face. How he would be comforted and delighted at the appearance of this judge. His time of sorrow has come to an end. Likewise, our catechism speaks with beauty and eloquence. In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as this judge from heaven, the very same person who before had submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed the curse from me. That very same person. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones into heavenly joy and glory. Then we will enter into a day, a day which we read about in Revelation, a day in which there will be no more tears or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Brothers and sisters, this is what we have to look forward to. This is what awaits us. Is that not such a great comfort? What tears of joy will stream down our faces on that great and glorious day. It won't be a day of judgment for us, but a day of rejoicing and celebration. And it will not only be one day, but it will be the first of many, the first of an eternity of days spent rejoicing with our high priest, our king, and our savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.